This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more. Throughout the years, as I have tried to articulate sort of the burden that God has put on my heart, I've, I've had different ways of expressing it. And even Ellerslie itself is sort of like this return to majesty, the return to the largeness of God. Uh, I used to give a illustration. It's not that I don't anymore. It's just that it's not always as prevalent as it was in my early years of ministry. And that is, I would speak about something called the endless frontier. And that we have taken one step into an endless frontier. And yet we oftentimes think, I've gone so far. And yet it's an endless frontier. And we cannot pitch our tent where we're at. Most of us in our life, whether it's professionally, or whether it's spiritually, whether it's practically, relationally, we have a tendency to look for a flat piece of ground to call good enough. And in fact, just the term good enough is a dangerous telltale sign in our soul that something is eroding. When we accept the fact that, oh, I don't need to go any further, we are missing the very nature of heaven and what he, God is desiring to do in our life, which is to take us onward and upward. And so when, you, when we find ourselves, like professionally, it's, it's a common thing. You know, if you have a skill that you're developing, and for me, the whole illustration came out of singing, and I was trying to become a professional singer. And so what do I need to do to be a professional singer? Like what echelon do I need to rise to? It's like, is that good enough? Because there's a lot of work that goes into that. And I'm really not interested in putting in more work than is necessary. And that was where the quote came from, to me from my uh, singing coach. And you know, he's sort of recognized that I'm looking for that flat ground. And, he's, and I was trying to figure out how good I was. So I even asked him the question. After a year of training, and he wanted me to be training six hours a day, I think I averaged two and a half hours a day. For a year, by the way, you can do the math on that. That's a lot of hours of training. Uh, Scott, how good am I? He says, <clears throat> Eric, you were a soccer player, weren't you? Uh, I go, yeah. He goes, how good were you? When, well, w- when did you start playing soccer? That was the first question. I was like, seven. He goes, okay, you're seven years old. You've been playing soccer for one month. How good were you? I go, I stunk. He goes, exactly. <laughs> he says, but Eric, before you get discouraged, I want you to remember that singing is an endless frontier. And you have taken one step into it. However, you're one step further than 99.999% of the rest of the human race. But Eric, never pitch your tent. And that one idea has so transcended my life, and it's not just because it's a really good motivational idea that Tony Robbins would whip out. It's actually a kingdom idea that was passed on to me, and it's the idea we in Scripture call it sanctification. In other words, if you think that you are a finished work right now, it's like, oh, I'm done. God's done with me. Then that's the first sign that you are in erosion mode. In other words, that God always wants to take us further. Even if you've been a Christian 70 years, a strong Christian, God is, still has work. He's just beginning uh, in this grand adventure of conforming you into the image of his son. And for some of us, that could be depressing. It almost sounds like heavy. 
And it's like, well, how can I even absorb such uh, a thought that I'm just beginning? And it can be intimidating to think of all this endless cavernous uh, possibility. To my soul, it's like sucking on candy. That is what I love. I love to know that where I'm at now isn't where I need to remain. And that just imagine that your marriage has endless possibilities of growth. And you do not need to just settle where you're at and pitch your tent and say, well, this is the way I have it now that your relationships with others, that they have unlimited potential. If you're a parent, that you could be even a greater parent. If you're a spouse, you could even be a greater spouse. If you're a believer, that you could even be a stronger believer. And this idea is very, very kernel and central to what gets us up in the morning. If you feel that you know, growth is past tense, it makes it hard to wake up because you know, what, what do you have to look forward to? Uh, you know, a downhill slide. And that's not at all what causes us to see clearly or to move in the right direction. And so I have, if, if you know a certain story in Scripture, this will stand out to you. And it's a story that I've referenced many times over the years, but deserves a fresh encore. And the name of this one is, I Want Double. The God of the Impossible. Now, I know I put another word up there, but I made it a little slightly different grayish color. The God of the impossible territory. When you step into certain zones of your life, certain situations, certain events in your life, I'm going to call that, some, sometimes we could describe that as the impossible territory. Well, there's nothing we could do here. This is impossible. And yet that is God's territory. God specializes in impossible territory. If it's possible and you can reason your way out of it, or just for the little hard work you can get out of it, or you can save up enough money you can get out of it, that's not impossible territory. Impossible territory is where there is no possible way in the human side of things for you to crack the code, for you to escape the danger, for you to overcome the obstacle. That's impossible territory. And God is the God of that territory. This is the territory that he specializes in. And in fact, he purposely will set us in motion to bring us into impossible territory. We're like, that doesn't sound very loving. And yet it is extremely loving because in the impossible territory, you realize the God of the impossible. He can reveal himself as the God of the impossible only in that territory. Now, some of you are like, I'd be fine not knowing him as the God of the impossible. Thank you. And yet you really want to know him as the God of the impossible. So Matthew 19, 26, and there's multiple scriptures that say the same. Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. See, God takes impossible territory and brings about his ends. He makes it possible. So I'm going to share with you a story that is written by Flavius Josephus. You know the story. And it's an impossible situation that God is going to lead the Israelites into, and that is he is going to back them up against the Red Sea. You'd think he would have thought this through a little better, okay? Does he not realize that as he's taking his people out, that Pharaoh is going to get all disturbed again and want his people back? And does he not realize this? Did he not figure this in, that the Egyptians hold the most powerful military force in the world at that time? And that if they get stirred up and get a bee in their bonnet, this is going to be bad news for the Israelites. Did he not take that into consideration when he led them this way to literally come a butting up against a Red Sea? I mean, God, uh, maybe we should have a little forethought here. 
Does God not have forethought? Even in fact, the, the name Jehovah Jireh is showing that he has forethought. Provision. The God that provides. Pro means ahead of time. Vision. He has vision ahead of time. He knew that was there. He knew there was a Red Sea there. He knew what was happening in Pharaoh. And he seems to deliberately allow his people into this impossible territory. So the reason I wanted to read you Flavius Josephus' take is to give you a fresh lens on it. And there's certain things that Flavius Josephus writes. He's, he's, he lived in the time of Christ, and he was a Jewish historian. So he's going to write these stories, but with these unique little flavorings that I'm not saying are scripture. I'm just saying it's a historical record, and it's extremely fascinating to read. So this is in his book, The Antiquity of the Jews. Now when the Egyptians had overtaken the Hebrews, they prepared to fight them, and by their multitude they drove them into a narrow place. For the number that pursued after them was 600 chariots with 50,000 horsemen and 200,000 footmen, all armed. They also seized on the passages by which they imagined the Hebrews might fly, shutting them up between inaccessible precipices and the sea. The Hebrews, if they should have thought of fighting, had no weapons. They expected a universal destruction unless they delivered themselves up to the Egyptians. There's always a very clear despair route. It's like you do realize this is impossible. And the enemy always supplies his hand to say, I can take care of that. All you have to do is resubmit to my enslavement, okay? Just, just come back to where we were. You know, the penalty will not be too severe. You know, I may not give you straw to make any bricks, but you know what? You can still make bricks for me, and you can still have some leeks and onions while you do. You see, the, he's, a, he's a dealer, a wheeler dealer. So they laid the blame on Moses. We have a tendency to do the same. You know, it's like, God, you didn't come through for me. And forgot all the signs that had been wrought by God for the recovery of their freedom. And this so far that their incredulity prompted them to throw stones at the prophet while he encouraged them and promised them deliverance. But Moses, though the multitude looked fiercely at him, did not, however, give over the care of them, but despised all dangers out of his trust in God. He said, it is no better than madness at this time to despair of the providence of God now. Why would we despair of the providence of God in the place of the impossible? Why would we? Providence is the same word as provision. It's a descriptor of God, almost like a name itself, that he is the God who saw this situation beforehand and has supplied a solution. That's what providence means. God saw that ahead of time and supplied a solution. And as a result, why should we, if we truly are believers, despair in the providence of God just because it seems impossible, just because we have 600 chariots, 50,000 horsemen, uh, 500, 600,000 uh, footmen. Boy, I, I don't remember all the numbers. It was a lot, right? And all armed. Meanwhile, what do we have as the Israelites? Nothing. We have our women, children, and goats, okay? It's like this isn't feeling very, uh, you know, like a good situation. So Josephus is going to write down what he would call the prayer of Moses, okay? And I just want you to listen to this prayer and just see if it echoes in your soul. Like, this is the sort of thing that you pray in a time like this. Thou art not ignorant, O Lord, that it is beyond human strength and human contrivance to avoid the difficulties we are now under. But it must be thy work altogether to procure deliverance to this army, which has left Egypt at thy appointment. In other words, we left Egypt because you told us to leave Egypt. We are here because you led us here. So 
What should we do as believers in such a circumstance? Even though it may seem impossible, should we give way to despair and discouragements and depression? Or should we trust him? We despair of any other assistance or contrivance and have recourse only that hope, only to that hope we have in thee. And if there be any method that can promise us an escape by thy providence, we look up to thee for it. And let it come quickly and manifest thy power to us. And do thou raise up this people unto good courage and hope of deliverance who are deeply sunk into a disconsolate state of mind. Now listen to this, guys. This is where it gets really good. We are in a helpless place. Remember that impossible place, that, the territory that God owns? But still it is a place that thou possesses. Still the sea is thine. The mountains also that enclose us are thine, so that these mountains will open themselves if thou commands them, and the sea also, if thou commands it, will become dry land. Nay, we might escape by a flight through the air if thou should determine we should have the way, that way of salvation. If God wants to make the mountains flat so we can walk through them, he can do that because they belong to him. If he wants to make this sea part and we walk across on dry land, he can do that. If he wants us as a nation to fly out of here, he can do that. Do you have that sort of confidence in your God when you end up in the impossible straits? You know what we have a tendency to do is look for possibilities in the impossible straits. It's like, what could I do? What could happen? And we try and think it through. I mean, I'm classic for that. I mean, that's like Eric Ludi in a nutshell. It's like, if I could just get a reasonable avenue of escape, then I can relax, even if it's not going to happen. I just want to know that there's some way out of this. And God has had to bring me to that place like this. That's why I'm attracted to stories like this. I'm very familiar with this territory, where it's just like, God, I have nothing. Well, wait a minute. I have you. This is your territory. You own this. You brought me here. I am just trying to follow you, and somehow I ended up backed up against a Red Sea. All right? God, even though my circumstances look impossible, and even though the Egyptians have cut off all means of escape, these mountains are your territory. You possess them. And you can do with a mountain whatever you want. And this is before the New Testament said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you could tell this mountain to be moved and picked up and thrown into the midst of the sea. And Moses is already thinking thoughts like that. He's thinking thoughts like God could part this sea and walk across on dry land. Now, if we hadn't read that story in the Old Testament, we would be like, yeah, right. How's that going to work? We could fly out of here. Wouldn't it be cool if God swapped out the story and instead they flew out of there? That would be a really cool mental picture. Imagine the movie, you know, with, uh, who, who's the guy that, Charlton Heston. Yeah, and they're like flying. He's like flapping his arms. <laughs> what a great moment. In other words, it's a confidence that God is greater than my circumstances. And that's where I, at the very beginning of this message, just want to touch, how, touch that part of your soul. How big is your God? Impossible prayers. And I'm going to call those God's favorite sort. So I've always wanted my kids to always have an impossible prayer that they're praying. And I want you guys to ponder that too. Right now in your life, do you have an impossible prayer that you're praying? And I don't care if you have 10 of them, just if you have one of them. Just one thing that you are asking God for on a consistent basis that technically, by all natural measurements, could not happen. And I, I've had some great ones that my kids have prayed. Uh, I remember one was that, uh, 
they would teach creation in the public schools and evolution would no longer be taught. You know, it's one of those types of prayers. It's like, oh, okay, well, that's, that's really powerful. Uh, and I think one was that abortion would be completely eliminated from our country. It's like, wow, well, that's, I like that prayer. You know, they're little kid prayers, right? That are like, hey, if I'm going to ask big, and then they do. And, you know, for us as adults, we have a tendency to have all the barnacles of reasons why that couldn't ever happen. Now, if, if I say something, you know, either one of those prayers, and most of you would like chuckle and say just how cute. And yet, who is the God that we serve? And is he not a God that delights to do that which is impossible? Daring to ask for more. Let me give you a couple quotes that have sort of been uh, Ellerslie fodder for years. Oswald Chambers, the proof that we have the vision is that we are reaching out for more than we have grasped. It is a bad thing to be satisfied spiritually. Isn't it a strange thought? It sounds like discontentment. However, there is something that is supposed to arrest our soul, and that is the desire for more. But not in a self-craving way, a more of God sense. I want more in my marriage. I want more in my family. I want more in the kingdom of heaven. And this is part of our wiring. We are designed to increase in capacity. And so as a result, when we exercise the capacity we have, that increases our capacity for more. And so in our relationship with God, when we exercise and we go after the fullness of God, what happens? We can actually absorb more fullness. We can actually handle more of him. And this is the growth and maturity in the kingdom of heaven. Andrew Murray says it this way, you will ask me, are you satisfied? Have you got all you want? God forbid. With the deepest feeling of my soul, can I say that I'm satisfied with Jesus now? But there is also the consciousness of how much fuller the revelation can be of the exceeding abundance of his grace. Let us never hesitate to say this is only the beginning. Give me double. Now I'm going to relate to a story and it's going to include Elisha and Elijah in the Old Testament. And it's at Elijah's parting. And it's quite the scene. I mean the whole story itself is just a profound picture of the twos, the first and the second, and that the, what the second gets is actually a greater portion of even what the first had. And yet, when you look at the Old Testament, you say, who is the greatest prophet? Most people would default to Elijah. And yet, Elisha is going to have even more than Elijah. And he, well, we'll go through the story and you'll see all the parallels. It's, it's an incredible thing. But Elijah or Elisha is going to ask for something. He is given an ask. I don't know if you've ever had that moment in your life where you've pondered. If God asked me to ask him for anything, he says, Eric, ask me for something. I'll do it for you. Which, by the way, he does. That's it's in the New Testament if you haven't read that. However, sometimes we need to almost like startle our soul with a moment where God comes in and booms that very word to our souls. What would you ask for? And I, I, a lot of times it's when I'm driving alone on a long trip and I'm pondering that. And I've gone back and I've repeated this sort of conversation with God where it's like, I don't want to waste my ask. I want to make, treat it like it's, I have one ask. And if I was going to ask one thing, what would it be? And you know, you, your mind goes all over the place uh, with something like that. But when all is said and done, I feel like no matter what I choose, and I come back to this story and I always think, Elisha is smarter than me. 
That's, that's my ending conclusion. It's like, oh, I missed that one. That's good, Elisha. That is really good. So let me share the story with you. But to ask for double, this is, which is what the whole message is about, to ask for that, you must be convinced that there is more to even get. And I want you to catch that. You see, Elisha is staring at Elijah, who never on earth has there been someone like Elijah. He raised someone from the dead. First guy in history to do something like that, right? He called down fire from heaven. He lived supernaturally being fed by ravens uh, for a whole season. It's like, who is this guy? And for Elisha to have the audacity to ask him what he's going to ask him, obviously Elisha knows that there's even more than what Elijah has. So 2 Kings 2. And so it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? Uh, see, there's the moment, guys. It's, it, imagine that you're in Elisha's position right now. It's like, whoa, whoa, what a privilege. So I mean, you mean I can ask the mighty prophet uh, for anything? Elisha said, please, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. So Elijah said, uh, wow, uh, you've asked a hard thing. I added the wow, by the way. <laughs> Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Then it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven and Elisha saw it. And he cried out, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. So he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had also struck the water, it was divided this way and that, and Elisha crossed over. There's a lot going on there that should hearken to the New Testament, that should cause you to think of the one that is ascending before us. And he's going to say, ask. And then when he leaves, his mantle is going to like flutter down. And it's right by the Jordan. I don't know if you see a, a lot of these parallels here. And then, so what we have in the New Testament is this picture of the disciples seeing Christ go up. And what's going to flutter down? The Holy Spirit. The very thing that empowered him, that enabled him to do. I know he was God, but he still lived by the power of the Spirit. And so the same thing that empowered him has now been given. And remember when Jesus says, and greater works will you do? It's like, what greater? And maybe that's talking about quantity, because how can we do a greater work than the cross, right? But what you see in Elisha's life is that from this point forward, he's going to turn into something very special. And if you measure his miracles... When he dies, he has exactly double the miracles of Elijah as recorded in the scripture, minus one. Doesn't that just bother you, those mathematicians in here? It's just like, uh, excuse me, God, well, you missed one there. So he's laying dead you know, in his uh, tomb, uh, and uh, these guys are running, and they have a dead body, and they don't know what to do with it, and they huck it into uh, Elisha's uh, sepulcher, and the guy pops back to life. And God's like, double. That's an incredible thought. Uh, and so, but there is something known as double. And who of us in here would have ever guessed that you could come up to Elijah and say, I want double what that guy has? 
And so for all of us to have the understanding that whatever you have seen in this generation, go after more. There's just two quotes from this that I really like. So, Elijah said, uh, you have asked a hard thing. There's something about that that I don't know that it resonates with a lot of our prayers. I don't know that we ask a hard thing. I mean, Elijah himself in the human sense is like, uh, wow, you want double what I have? And maybe Elijah's thinking, I'm not sure if that's available either. But Elisha wants it. He craves it. And there's something about that that God honors in this. Now look at this quote. And Elisha saw it. What was the proof that he would receive it? If you see me going up, that means the answer is yes. And Elisha saw it. The ever-deepening river, the exponential increase of forward faith. When we move forward in agreement with the Word of God, and we step forward not just in agreement but in faith, understanding that God means it when He says it, and He will do it if He promises. This picture in the Old Testament, uh, in the book of Ezekiel, of what I call the ever-deepening river, to me is a picture of how we interact with that mantle that is fluttered down. This is a direct picture of the Holy Spirit. It is going to be referenced as such even in the New Testament. In other words, there's a parallel and there's a, a combo package for our understanding in this picture. But this is that which flutters down, that which is left to us. And it's likened here to a river. And it gushes out of the temple in the Old Testament, this Ezekiel temple, which as far as we know, was never built on this earth, right? And so it's likely a heavenly temple. And yet out of that heavenly temple seems to gush a river, which is strange. I don't know how many of you have a house that gushes a river out. I mean, that's just not a normal house. You'd be a little concerned about that house. And yet out of the house of God gushes a river. And now look at the cross. What are you going to see? The house of God, Jesus, as he's on that cross, is going to be pierced, and out of his side is going to gush a river. And it's blood and water. Blood is, to the, the Jew, life. That's life water. That's living water. It's a river of living water that gushes out of the house of God. So you're going to see this fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And that is a symbol of the Spirit of God given to us. So... In looking at this, Ezekiel 47, then he brought me back to the door of the temple and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east and from the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east and there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits and he brought me through the waters the water came up to my ankles. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through. The water came to my waist. Again, he measured 1,000. It was a river that I could not cross for the water was too deep. Water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. So we see multiple things in this story. First of all, when you progress in obedience with the direction of the Spirit of God in your life, which has been given to us, this is actually ultimately headed into the Dead Sea, which is going to cause it to teem with life. So whatever dead spots are in us, literally this life is flooding through us, but also into a world. And so as we obediently walk forward in agreement with it, you're going to see a pattern that matches the New Testament pattern. 
And that is less of us, more of the river. Less of us, more of the river. Less of us, more of the river. When we walk forward, we become less. And the, and the river, the Spirit of God, and He's working in our life, the revelation of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus Christ, is going to become more apparent. The other thing you're going to see in this is a doubling effect. And that's why I sort of like the concept of doubling, because for whatever reason, God seems to you know, draw attention to it. But you're going to be up to ankles and then to knees. And then knees to waist. And then waist, boom. And so you're going to see sort of the same effect. And yet most of us are happy if we just get up to our ankles. It's like the classic debate in Christianity of if you have the Holy Spirit or not. It's just like, well, you know, I, you know people are like, I don't think you were baptized with the Holy Spirit. You don't speak in tongues. You guys ever uh, been caught in that uh, whole fracas? And it's a tense one, and the church is divided over it. There's entire denominations that hold to certain positions uh, over the, this clarity. And yet what I would say is let's get out of that argument, and let's say this is an ever-deepening river. So don't argue because someone's not up to their knees that they're not up to their ankles. They can be up to their ankles. However, I'm in agreement with you. We should shove the body forward deeper into these waters, and let's go after a greater dimension of God's control in our life. And I never want to make the issue tongues or not, you know, not speaking in tongues or speaking in tongues. What a terrible thing to make a divisive point in the, in the body of Christ. I want Jesus to be the chief evidence that we are in the water. How do you know that someone's in the water? Well, they show Jesus. And so Jesus himself is going to say, you will know my disciples or you'll know those that are in the water. Why? Because they, of their love for one another. In other words, there are evidences that we're in this water. However, you could be up to your ankles, and that could be a statement of you today. What should you do? Well, Jesus is measuring off another thousand cubits, and he's saying, come on, let's move forward into this endless frontier. Let's not settle here and pitch our tent and say, no, I already have uh, water. I already have living water. Yeah, I already dipped my foot into that. I know what you're talking about. Got that. As opposed to saying, I want more. And it's not just that you want more, it's that that's the current that you're in. The Spirit of God wants you to have more. He wants to take you deeper into this life. The recipe for the more. So it's one part God of the impossible and one part striking the ground until he says stop. Now I'm mixing a whole bunch of stories here to do this, but I want to give you sort of this recipe. One is you must know that God delights in doing impossible things. First of all, the fact that any of us in here could be anything other than a pain in the neck to the world around us is a show of the grace of God right there. The fact that we are the chosen vehicles and revelatory devices and instruments through which to reveal the unseen realm, and he chose these things. Us. I mean, that's preposterous. That's like laugh out loud. This is like good humor in the kingdom of heaven. And you can imagine the angels going, so you want to use us? And they like stand there like this. And he goes, no, I'd like to use them. And you know, you see the finger of God and you follow it. In the movie scene, the camera like follows and then it has a whole bunch of us like tooling around, you know, arguing with each other and punching each other in the face. It's like, wait a minute, you want to use them? They're my chosen vehicle. I made them in my image so that I could fill them and use them. So that's enough to start with. But then when we are awakened, when we're stirred from our stupor, and we begin to see the grandeur of who he is, and we begin to realize that he doesn't just want to save us from our sin and the penalty of our sin, but that he desires to fill us and use us 
to reveal to this world the grandeur of the unseen realm. It's like, oh, we just got an upgrade right there. We just got a doubling. We went from ankles to knees just right there. Are you saying you want to use me to change the world? And yet, what does it look like when he begins to increase beyond that? That he desires to show who he is, his love, his kindness, his patience. That he desires to show his courage and his boldness in and through you. But you're like, well, I don't have courage and boldness. How in the world am I supposed to pull off that? He's like, okay, we need to go from waist to chin here. I need you to recognize that I never intended you to do it. But I intended me living inside of you. You submitting to me, allowing me to have those hands, allowing me to have that heart, allowing me to have that mind, allowing me to have that tongue, and speak through you. See, God's wanting to upgrade us into a place of dependence where that which comes out of us is not fruit that we bear in our own mustard, our own moxie, our own gritted teeth, but it's something that he bears in and through us because we abide in him. We yield to him, and as a result, something profound comes out, and it's less of us, more of the river. Less of us, more of the Holy Spirit's work. And so as a result, the end result of our life is the testimony that what was seen in us was Jesus Christ. And yes, they know we are human, but wow, I saw Jesus Christ in and through you. So I'm going to introduce the second part here because we need to know that God is the God of the impossible, that he loves to accomplish what I just described, which is, by the way, by definition, impossible. And there's also another part, which is striking the ground until he says, stop. Now I'm referencing another story that does involve Elisha again. Elisha's our key link between the stories. And here it is, 2 Kings 13. Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. This is such a funny story because it's so plain spoken and just sort of says it the way it is. And it doesn't elaborate. It just sort of gets right to it. So we have this character named Joash, who's the king of Israel. Now, technically, no king of Israel ever did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So, however, you have to admire Joash here because he knows that Elisha has something and he got it from Elijah. And so, and when did he get it? He got it when Elijah was passing away or leaving. And so he realizes that Elisha's passing away. And so he's like, okay, I know you have something there, and I'd sort of like to access it. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. Does that sound familiar? That's the very same quote that Elisha whipped out when he was receiving the mantle. So you could see, I I don't know if the guy's thinking, is this a formula? Do I say these words? I don't know. I can't judge the motive of Joash. I just know that his life overall was not very impressive to God, right? That's all I know. However, it could be that he's attracted to the thing that all of us are attracted to as well. He just happens to have a Uh, you know, be more ruled by the flesh than the Holy Spirit in his life. And so I can't really comment on Joash, but I can show you the story, which is very interesting. And Elisha said to him, take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it. Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the east window. Then he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. 
Then he said, take the arrows. So he took them. And he said to the king, strike the ground. Stop. Okay, now if you're in this situation and you're desirous for more, you're desirous for what the prophet has, which I think is a good thing. I mean, I, I think Elisha's on the right track of asking for double, and I think King Joash is on the right track. Again, I can't really speak for his motive here. But now we know that this arrow is a symbol of something, is a symbol of the Lord's deliverance. And he says that you must strike Aphek until it is destroyed. All right, now pick up those arrows and strike the ground. Now, if you were given arrows and you were told to strike the ground, I'm concerned for you as I am for me that I would pull a Joash. And I would go, punk. In fact, I think I might even start after one. Like, what are you saying? Strike the ground? Like, punk. And then Elisha's like, he gets hot in the face. He's like all red. And he's like, I can't believe you only struck once. It's like, I just struck the ground. Isn't that what you said? And so the story is a little disconcerting to me because I feel very vulnerable to only striking the ground once or like Joash three times. So he struck three times and stopped. Oh no, did he stop? I mean, can you believe Joash just stopped? And the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. Then Elisha died and they buried him. <laughs> okay, guys, I, there's a lesson in all of this, and that is that when we approach this ask moment, when we approach this grand king, recognizing that he is the God of the impossible, he desires to do something in this earth, and he has given us an ask. It's like an arrow. And he says, what are you going to do with that ask? He says, this is a symbol of the fact that I will do it. This arrow that you are holding in your hand is a symbol of my power and my ability to do precisely what I've promised. Strike the ground with it. Like that, God? No, not like that. What should it look like in our souls, in our ask, in our leaning? You see, our, our requests are so pathetically smallish they are human in size instead of God-sized. So here's, here's my recommendation to you. If you're going to go after more, remember that he is the God of the impossible, not the possible. And when you have that ask in your hand, that you strike the ground vigorously over and over and over and over and over and over and over, not just five or six times, but you keep striking until God himself reaches out, grabs your wrist, and says, that is enough. And I think then we're starting to move into the territory of, God, I'm going after something more. Because doubling isn't really the key for me. It just happens to be sort of the concept in Scripture. I want more. I want more in my spiritual life. I want more in my marriage. I want more in my family. I want more in here. I want more in the global church of Jesus Christ. And boy, do we need it, and we need it now. However, how are we supposed to approach this? It's like, God, I don't know how you're going to do this. No, that isn't the way. God, in my own mind, I can't see it. But I know you can. 
You are the God that takes the impossible circumstance and you turn it. And you could part this sea and we could walk across on dry land. You could flatten these mountains and we could traipse out of here just out of sight of the Egyptians anytime you want. And if you really want, and it's sort of a fun thought, God, we could fly out of here. The God that we serve is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. However, we have a tendency to diminish him down to what we could ask or think. We're living one strike of an arrow to the ground Christianity right now. I think Joash is even making us look bad. But what if we were to up our game and say, Lord, I'm going after more. I believe that God delights in that attitude of the neighbor that comes next door and knows that there's only one place in town that seems to have bread, kink, 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 and doesn't knock just once, and doesn't just knock twice, and even when the guy inside says, hey, leave me alone, I'm in bed with my family, which is a weird thought, but uh, that he keeps knocking. And how about the widow with the unjust judge? Who shares these stories, by the way? Jesus. Jesus is the one that is leading us to this illustration of the widow. Do you see how irritating she is? I want you to be that way with me. Because that's the way we feel. The reason we don't do it is we don't want to presume. We don't want to be irritating to the God of heaven. He says, this is how you show faith in me. So as a result, you might as well remove the word irritating from your mental description of what these stories are. Because God himself is saying, here is your pattern. You know that I have bread in my house. You knock until I open. You know that I have the power and the authority to rule in your situation. You keep bothering me until I work in your direction. You want more in this world? You want to see this nation turn? Then there is a pattern that has been given us in Scripture. But we must go after it wholeheartedly. Staying in the doubling soil. Don't hop out until the supernatural work is complete. So the process of doubling for us isn't always that easy. You know, it's sort of like going into the water slower and slower, and it's really icy cold maybe. Or, you know, when it starts to get up near your, your mouth, it's like a little scary maybe, yeah. You see, when we are obeying and we're walking in the direction of the king, it can oftentimes create a challenge in our soul to keep going. And so what I could romanticize is just keep striking the ground. Well, it's actually not that easy to do that. We're moving into a direction of challenge, and it's a friction point that goes directly against the way that we are wired and the way the world works with us. And God says, I don't want you to buy into the way you are wired or the way the world works. I want you to start functioning after my pattern. And when you agree with my pattern, you will see breakthrough. So I'm calling it the doubling soil, but there are situations in our lives that we really wish would end, would be solved, that they would go away. And if we could, we would get rid of them. We would push the delete button. We don't want that trial. We don't want that hazard. We don't want that challenge. We don't want that difficulty. We don't want that person in our life. Whatever it is, there are certain challenges that we face. And I'm going to call that doubling soil that you have been planted into your circumstances, and if you would embrace the challenges around you, God's style, recognizing that actually that doubling oftentimes comes not by you just asking for it, 
but by you actually embracing in faith with the same vigor that these stories are demonstrating your current challenges. To say, God, I want the most you can give out of this. I want to double in my strength because of this situation. I've said over these past years that I was learning the difference between suffering and long-suffering. And I never knew that there was a need for me to learn the difference between those two. Aren't they the same thing? Well, when you go from just suffering, which most of us have a mindset like, okay, I can go through this. It's a short window of time, and God will be faithful. And then he proves faithful, right? And you're like, oh, God, I learned so much through that. But there's a whole different thing when you go through a long stretch, and you're thinking the whole time, God, right, you're going to come through. I believe you. I trust you. And then it keeps going. It's like, God, but remember me? Those long-suffering seasons are a soil that is perfectly suited to the doubling, to the increase in your life. I want more of God in my life. Well, then am I willing to embrace those seasons of suffering? I mean, Eric, how serious are you in growing? Do you really want to grow up? Do you really want more of me? Well, I do, but uh, could I have it outside of this soil? Could I have it in the soil that is all cozy and comfortable and nice? Instead, God seems to oftentimes answer our prayer for more in and through, ironically, a difficult path. And I'm gonna give you one illustration out of my life, which I'm sure I've shared somewhere along the line in these past four years. But it's a critical moment in my life and it's like I cherish it, even though it was a very, very hard moment. And that is, I remember I was on an early morning walk. I was experiencing a, an acute challenge in my soul. It felt sort of like a, a, a knife blade in my heart. And it's hard to describe if you've never gone through things like this, but it wasn't that I stuck it there. And I'm not saying God stuck it there, it's just there. Because of the circumstances in my life, there is an acute challenge, an acute trauma, and I want it gone. Lord, could you, could you remove this, this trial, this suffering? And I had been walking through, I was getting up very early, and I was spending a lot of time with Christ. When you go through a season of suffering, you either become cantankerous in your spiritual life and, and actually begin to push God away, or you get very close to him. And I was getting very, very close to my God. And there was a warmth of his presence. The scriptures call it a consolation. That the spirit of God in a very near and dear and warm way becomes, it grows large in your soul during those acute trials. And oftentimes you don't see that when you're going through the trial. You just feel the pain. And so as I was on my prayer walk and I was just talking to God about the fact that, you know, I, was, I don't cry a lot. That's not a normal thing that I do except for when I'm watching like a movie. Then I shed tears and all my kids look at me and go, yeah, daddy's, daddy's crying. I don't know if it's crying as much as I'm touched, okay? Uh, however, I don't, I don't, I, I wish I could just sort of unlock emotion more, but as I was walking, I remember just even feeling sort of hot uh, behind my eyes, like, God, I, I need a reprieve. I need a buoy right now. And if I could turn it into a conversation, it was something like this. Eric, I could solve this right now for you. You know, and my first instinct is like, yes, now we're talking. But Eric, you know that closeness that you have with me right now? 
that intimacy that we're sharing just right now. You see, the reason that you have such a heightened sensitivity to me and such a heightened sense of warmth in this communion is because of that thorn. It's because of that knife blade. Did, were you saying you wanted me to pull that out? And this is, I mean, I'm a human, right? That likes ease and comfort like the rest. And I said to God in that time of prayer, I choose to have the intimacy with you even if you leave this in here forever. Because I saw it. I saw the value of what was taking place in me through that. I receive this challenge as long as you want to give it because in and through it, I'm getting more of you. And my value system obviously has been impacted by the Spirit of God in my life for me to come to that conclusion. In other words, that's not old Eric thinking. That's a new Eric thinking. I actually agree with God's kingdom pattern. This is good for me right now. I don't like it in the human sense. I wish it could go in the human sense. But in the spiritual sense, thank you, Lord. Thank you for this sharp pain. Thank you for how you are using it in my life, and thank you for allowing me to share in the fellowship of your sufferings, that I could know you, that I could be found in you, that I could be brought near to you in and through this. So, of course, all of us would say, God, could you take the pain and I keep the closeness? And it doesn't mean that God is removed from you because he removes the pain eventually, because he does. There's, these are seasons that we go through. But what happened in that season of embracing that difficulty was there was an increase. Whether I'd call it a double, it's an increase in the soul of Eric Ludi or in your soul. This is how we are built. It's the step forward of agreement into the deeper waters. The Spirit of God is leading this way and we're like, whoa, don't want to go that way. You do want to go that way. You see, the narrow way at first blush, just like in Pilgrim's Progress, looks like a hill difficulty. Well, I don't want to go there. There's a broad way this way and, and this way. Any way to avoid the difficulty I will take in both ways lead to destruction. There is one way that leads to life. And it doesn't look very attractive to our natural man. However, that's why you need supernatural eyesight. You need to see things from God's lens. This is how you get more of him. Do you want more of him? I do. I really do. I want to pray prayers like Elisha. And even though we don't quite know how to measure Joash and his motives, I want to be like Joash. And I want to come to God and say, what do I need to do to get more? Well, here's your ask. I want you to strike the ground with it. Okay. I mean, what's the good of Scripture if you're not going to learn from it? All right, I remember that story. And I'm going to start, start striking until... When you get an impossible prayer, you don't just strike three times. It's like, well, God obviously doesn't want to do it. You strike and you strike and you strike, and it could be that you hand off that arrow to your kids and you say, keep striking, kids. Because until God has answered, we do not stop. Until he reaches out his almighty hand and grabs our wrist and says, that will be enough. It is accomplished. It is finished. There comes a time when every prayer is going to be satisfied. It'll be done. Elijah knew after seven times bowing down and sticking his head between his knees that he saw a cloud the size of a man's fist in the sky and he knew that his prayers had been answered even though the rain had not yet come. 
he knew that it was answered. And there comes a time in all of our striking of the ground when we know it is enough. It's really hard for me to explain to you how you know when you've prayed enough. But you know, and there's a peace, there's a rest. You can set down that arrow and pick up a new one. God is a God that delights to answer prayer. And get this, he delights to answer impossible ones. But we need to up our game to start praying God-sized prayers instead of man-sized prayers. Praise God that even with our man-sized prayers, which no matter what prayer we give, even when we call it impossible, God's probably still thinking, eh, easy. But even with our eh, easy prayers, God still will do exceedingly and abundantly beyond it because that's his way. Father, I pray that you would stir us afresh, that you would give us eyes to see, that we would see whether it is the ask with Elijah and the seeking of more and the fluttering mantle, whether it is the the river that is ever deepening, whether it is the arrow in our hand to strike the ground, whatever mental picture helps unlock this for us, and maybe it's the combination of all of them. But Lord, I pray that we as a church would be stirred and awakened for more, and that we would not accept the depravity of our age. We would not accept the breakdown of the church in our modern era. We would actually seek to see it rise up to a whole nother level of maturity and strength and power. Lord, we do ask for revival in the church of Jesus Christ right here, right now. And may we keep striking the ground with our arrows until it happens. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.